Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, mentally fried, brain-blown TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. And I'm Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. I don't know how we begin. Well, I know how we begin to discuss this week's episode of, of Twin Peaks. We should start at the beginning. But let's just say, just right up front, like, uh, you know... Uh, words started to leak about this episode, you know, a few days before that this was going to be a strange one. And I actually remember when I was reporting our Twin Peaks cover story earlier this year in March, when I was speaking with Showtime executives, they were speaking cryptically about a certain episode, like roughly in the middle of the run that like... They clearly just couldn't wait for people to see it. I don't know if they were excited about it or nervous about it, but unless there is something else, and I would like to see what that something else is, I think this is the episode they were hinting at. So, uh, (laughs) but if there is another episode as crazy as that one, like bring it on. Let's dig in here. Uh, First part of part eight of Twin Peaks, the part that we have to now refer to as the most obviously realistic part of the show. (laughs) We're hanging out with uh, Jeff. You were saying it may be time to to finally retire the phrase Dirty Cooper, uh, since at this point, I I, I think we can call this guy the doppelganger or Mr. C, or I believe in this episode was the first time he was referred to as Mr. Cooper. He's driving away from the penitentiary with Ray. There was a bit of a conversation about this information that Ray has, numbers he's memorized. Uh, I'm not sure that you had that you caught this on your rewatch, Jeff, but uh, it specifically said that Ray wants to go to a place called the farm. Yes. And if we had more time, if, if, if we had more time, and this uh, episode didn't feature the birth and death of several universes, we could talk about what the farm is. Ray pulls aside to uh, take a leak. After, by the way, Jeff, this was the greatest use yet of like your. Point Point about how the Dark Cooper uses magic technology yes. on his phone. <laughs> like on his phone, he had an app that seemed to be like, "Oh, here are the three tracking devices they have on this car," and they just went up behind a truck and he typed in the truck's <laughs> license plate, and that was the end of them being tracked. I love. It just seems like 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 Lynch or Frost saw like you know Enemy at the State or some other techno thriller, and we're like, that's kind of cool. But you know, I don't really want to research all that stuff too much. Let, let's just say it's like magic technology, and we'll kind of go from there. <laughs> uh, they pull off. Uh, Ray's got to take a leak. Uh, you know, we think we're about to see a patented, uh, you know, Mr. Cooper is gonna like, you know, puppet master everything. You know, someone thinks that they have one up on him, but he actually has one up on them. Surprise, surprise. Really the biggest surprise of of the, of the night for the first 10 minutes at least. Uh, <laughs> Ray had seemingly outwitted Cooper. He shot him. Cooper falls over dead. Great end of the show, I'd say. Bad guy vanquished. Uh, nope. Uh, but... <laughs> Woodsmen appear. They do this like sort of odd dance around, you know, the body. They start smearing blood, or perhaps like you know, they're they're rubbing him so hard that blood has started to come off of him. Just like this gross, but also really fascinating sort of supernatural kind of like end of seventh seal dance of death all around this fallen figure. And then, out of his chest 
comes this this thing. And and to be honest, the first time I saw it, like I think it was just so dark that I I couldn't quite tell what that thing was. But you right. kind of described this to me as almost a kind of not quite an 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 exorcism, but as a kind of pulling out of something, which I thought was really interesting. When you look at that shot, you know the way that it's constructed, all the superimposition, time is slowing and distorting. Ray's reaction is just like he looks like he looks like he's uh, beholding something just terrible and horrible. He's deeply unsettled. But yeah, you had like three of these woodsmen dancing around the body, and like another three or four on their knees. And initially, what you see is you don't see Mister Cooper's body there. He's gone. It looks like they're digging in the dirt with their fingers. Right, so they're digging the dirt. They're they're trying to dig something out. They're trying to find something, and then you see Mr. Cooper's body, like you know, like reappear in there. And now they're like massaging his his chest and his arms, like. The, but they're repeating the action of digging the dirt. They're digging in him. They're digging something out. They're trying to excavate them. So yeah, my whole theory is that they were there to extract Bob out of Mr. Cooper's body. That's my read. I think it's the only read that any sane person can have on that insane scene. No, just kidding. But that's my <laughs> that's my take on that, which kind of informs a little bit about what we're about to see next. But yes, they were there to extract Bob out of Mr. Cooper's body. And for the purpose, let's just skip ahead to my theory, which is that as much as we what we saw in this episode was a myth about the creation of Bob back in the day, I also wonder if what we kind of saw, that that myth sort of doubled as the reincarnation of Bob, so that what we're going to come to understand, and this is my theory of prediction, is that with Bob now extracted out of Mr. Cooper he's now going to repossess someone else out there in the world. That's what the the woodsmen were there to facilitate. I think a question that we might be asking is since we know that the Black Lodge was trying to get Bob and bring him back into the Black Lodge, like, should we be wondering, do the woodsmen represent the Black Lodge and the interests of the Black Lodge? Or are they another kind of like a bunch of beings all together and represent their own interests or represent Bob and the, the evil that is evil Cooper or Cooper's doppelganger? My theory on them initially, which was frankly almost entirely thrown aside by the end of, of the episode, is that they're sort of like this world's version of the observers from Fringe, like sort of these like, you know, uh, nefarious figures who aren't necessarily attached to any side, but who maybe represent something larger or stranger or deeper. Uh, we'll see. Um, Ray looked scared, but then he left, got in the car, called up Philip Jeffries. Now, what Ray said, and I, I have to say, this is really the, like, you know, deadpan moment of the night for me. Philip, it's Ray. I think he's dead, but he's found some kind of help, so I'm not 100%. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Um, he also said, I saw something at Co- in Cooper. It may be the key to what this is all about. That, for me, felt like a real flag planted very explicitly by Lynch and Frost. Like, hey, you might not know what you just saw, but what it was is the key to everything, or at least <laughs> the key to one corner of, of, of everything. But before we leave that scene, that little dialogue, that one-sided conversation, like begged a lot of questions about Ray. So I almost got the sense, you know, 
we think we understand that Ray is working for some guy that he thinks is Agent Jeffries, we might have reason to believe that who he thinks is Agent Jeffries isn't Agent Jeffries because of the conversation that Mr. Cooper had with this same voice. Assuming that Philip and Jeffries is the same Philip Jeffries played by David Bowie in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. So we just let, let's plant a flag there and then move on from it. But just to say that, like, I think we should be wondering in the same way that Mr. Cooper learned that who he thought was Philip Jeffries wasn't Philip Jeffries, that someone is impersonating Philip Jeffries or has done something with him. We might wonder if Ray is, is, is equally mistaken and the other thing I would say is, I think it begs a lot of questions about who Ray really is. Is he really some underworld guy? Is he an undercover agent? Is he been investigating Mr. Cooper for some other branch of the government or law enforcement? And you know what? I, I am really interested in the form of all the things of this episode. Strangely enough, I, my one of my top three questions is, what is the farm? Yes. Uh, well, what is the farm? Well, and, and like you know, I would just say to that, if you go back to part one, the place where we met Ray and Daria, like Beulah's place, has a real like room above the convenience store feeling to it, as far as being odd and strange and somewhat perhaps mythic within the realm of Twin Peaks. Not sure what that means. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping to learn more. Just real quick. Nine Inch Nails is in this episode, one of my <laughs> brother's favorite bands from back in the day, and I thought their performance was, I think I can say this, fucking awesome. Um, right. I loved how they were introduced by a heretofore unseen MC who introduced them as the Nine Inch Nails. I really loved how the song they sang, She's Gone Away. Of all the songs this season that have felt like you could dig into the lyrics for Twin Peaks Resonance, this I would say was the most kind of potentially Twin Peaksy of them all. The lyrics are, she's gone, she's gone away. I was watching on the day she died. Uh, there was a line at the start of the song about you dig in places till your fingers bleed, which seems to oddly relate to stuff that happens later in the episode. But, um, you know, I, I don't know that, that I have much to say about this, but the way that it that this musical number was just planted right in the middle of the kind of Cooper stuff, and that indeed we sort of cut back to the, the fallen Mr. Cooper coming back to life after that Nine Inch Nails performance. You know, what, what I kind of interpreted that to mean is whenever Black Lodge entities have a near-death experience. They see Trent Reznor perform something, and then they come back to life. That was my that was my initial. Any any other thoughts on the debut performance of the Nine Inch Nails, Jeff? Well, I mean, the fact that we're dealing with Nine Inch Nails again from a sort of like Meta Lynch perspective, we remember that Trent Reznor has been a collaborator with David Lynch on previous films, most notably Lost Highway, and so like. There's that meta quality again to the show. I mean, you know, Nine Inch Nails, the quintessential, uh, you know, industrial rock death metal band. Um, Lynch loves that stuff. They share kind of like preoccupations with themes of like evil and mortality and, you know, the dehumanization of industrial society, um, just yearning for some kind of like redemption through pure love or humanity like 
a very good band for the motifs and themes of this episode. You mentioned the lyrics, you know, coming off of that one, you dig in places till your fingers bleed. I mean, again, we, we've already seen that motif through the, the, the digging into Mr. Cooper and the digging in the dirt, um, but also spread the infection where you spill your seed, which will have some resonance given the things that we're about to talk about. But maybe my favorite detail about this scene, uh, Darren, besides the shots to the crowd, which are just like really getting into it with like body slamming, like 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 dancing, <laughs> is that the the MC of the Roadhouse, I had never noticed this before if this was on stage, but on his microphone stand, there's just, the microphone is mounted on a giant pine cone. I don't know if you noticed that, but I thought that was rather funny. <laughs> That's incredible, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I love this show. All right, Jeff, let me uh, run the clock back a little bit here. <laughs> July 16th, 1945, White Sands, New Mexico. If there is a core of the American experiment, I would say this is the American experiment's exploding, mind-blasting glass box. Trinity bomb testing, first ever nuclear blast. I mean, this is this is when the episode starts, right? This is the beginning of, like, this is why Lynch was trending on Twitter last night. As we look at this nuclear bomb blast going off, we may recall the nuclear bomb blast pictured behind Gordon Cole in his office. We might think that maybe this speaks to Gordon's sense of mission, uh, that he understands that was the day that whatever evil he's fighting entered the world. We can also interpret that this is a statement of purpose by David Lynch himself. Gordon's mission is tied up in the atomic age, and so is David Lynch's mission as a filmmaker with this material. We move slowly into the kind of, you know, mushroom cloud. Music starts playing. The the uh, track for a lot of this sequence was taken from, uh, it's called Threnody or Threnody, never said that word out loud before, to the victims of Hiroshima uh, by Christoph Penderecki, which is a musical line that's also used in The Shining and in a few other movies. We go into the nuclear blast, and from there... Well, we're seeing a birth, perhaps. We're seeing a birth of something abstract. You know, as far as like images to sort of latch on to, one that really jumped out at me was after this sort of incredible, you know, atom splitting iTunes screensaver gone hallucinogenic sort of few <laughs> minutes. We start to see the woodsmen kind of like parading all around a convenience store, a convenience store, of, clo of course, so central to what we know about the Black Lodge and, you know, the room above the, the convenience store as this sort of place where they all hung out. So much taken just in the sort of early moments of this, Jeff. Uh, what kind of jumped out at you as, as we began the atomic age of Twin Peaks? Well... All of these images are just so arresting on that level. I mean, after the Nine Inch Nails performance, we cut back to Mr. Cooper uh, in the lying in the woods. And and by the way, we should note that like after the woodsman took Bob out of him, Mr. Cooper seemed to disappear from the forest for a while. He wasn't there. When we cut back to, uh, to that location after the Nine Inch Nails performance, his body is there once again. Makes me wonder if there might be a story to be told about where he might have been briefly transported to. But then all of a sudden he pops awake um, with those you know, big black dead eyes. And then we cut to black. 
And it's interesting that you should say that, like, you know, this is where the episode begins. It, it really does feel like um, there were like two episodes sandwiched together. There was just this like one micro 15 minute episode about Dirty Cooper that ended formally <laughs> with, with as most episodes do on Twin Peaks these days, with a performance at the Roadhouse, right? But then we cut to black. <laughs> right. And then we cut to a completely different episode, this sort of like, you know, epic footnote in the history of... Twi- so it's, it's it's a micro episode of Twin Peaks uh, with a massive David Foster Wallace-esque footnote in the midst of, of everything, right? Um, which is the origin of everything apparently in Twin Peaks universe. But that just awesome shot like one of those kinds of shots where it's like this this overhead black and white shot, but it's not black and white. Maybe it's just like the, the black and white deserts of White Sands, New Mexico, where you're initially looking at it and you don't know what you're looking at. That Those like eerie landscape things that it reminded me again immediately of the end of 2001 uh, Space Odyssey and that trip through the monolith and you see all these abstract images which were actually like shots of the desert southwest of the United States through a filter. So just this, these amazing things of these, you know, like these landscape shots that look so alien that you don't really know what you're looking at. And then you hear that countdown, 10, 9, 8, and then you see that mushroom cloud burst, which as rendered through either animation or sculpture by twin by, by David Lynch, that mushroom cloud totally reminded me of the evolution of the tree, you know, just in terms of yes. the shape, right? You know? Yes, totally. Yes, absolutely. So right away, you are twinning this sort of like apocalyptic event in American history set to this song, which you just mentioned, uh, th- you know, Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima, Threnody meaning a, a song of grief or mourning. So c- clearly this is an event to grieve, <laughs> even though this event will help save us from the tyranny of Germany and, and the Axis powers in World War II uh, against this backdrop of the Manhattan Project. We also know that it will lead to the destruction of so many lives and set in motion in this incredibly morally ambiguous, like, you know, narrative of the Cold War. And and so, you know, you get the sense that like within the, the, the mythology of Twin Peaks, we're twinning this historical event that had all of these, you know, like really troubling ramifications with an image that evokes sort of like, I guess right now, the spirit of evil in Twin Peaks, which Lynch reminded us of in the previous episode when you saw the little baby brain tree, like, you know, like coaching, like <laughs> Dougie Cooper to do it, do it, do it. You know, squeeze his hand off. Um, like, you know, like, like give into the dark side. Right. Um, so yeah, this, this amazing mythic representation of evil. And you mentioned that song and, you know, that's interesting because you mentioned the movies that it's referenced in, um, the shining. Yes. A horror movie, the people under the stairs, but also in children of men, you know, the ranking dystopian sci-fi of our times. And I would just like to argue that it's possible that the, that the pop culture choices, the, the, the songs and the cultural references that are being made in the show are meant to carry with them the illusion, uh, illusions to their other usages in pop culture um, uh, for reasons I think that maybe we shouldn't explore here because it would just take too long. But I just noticed the horror imagery of everything, the dystopian, like refer- implicit reference of children of men. Like, like I, I, I'm not sure this is by accident. 
Um, but yeah, we go into that mushroom cloud and we get all of these abstract images. Like you get fire, you get debris, you get, you know, the, 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 at one point the debris field reminded me of the stars or debris that we saw Agent Cooper spiraling through um, after he fell out of the Black Lodge um, in parts one or two before he landed in, in the, the, the beachfront ocean house space station and space thingy, you know. But yeah, we got to that convenience store and that was just a weird bit of filmmaking where you see all these like specters of all of these woodsmen milling about and it, yeah, like great call on that. I didn't really pick up on that the first time, the idea that we might be dealing with some mythic representation of the convenience store um, that has been alluded to as a headquarters of, of the Black Lodge. But what was interesting about that convenience store is um, to go into the history just a little bit of the Trinity test, you know, they built a fake town, I believe, like around that test site to just see kind of like what the blast would do to this fake town. And there was something about that convenience store that felt like a prop house, you know, mm-hmm. the idea that we could be looking at like a shell of this prop town, um, I think is interesting in light of maybe some things we'll talk about later. Finally, I just want to say that the text on screen identified this place as White Sands, New Mexico, and that is accurate. But the specific place is called, and I have to look closely at my screen here, but the specific place is called Jornada del Muerto, which is um, Spanish, I believe, for Journey of the Dead Man or the Working Day of the Dead. So that idea, that name feels like it has resonance in the context of this episode as well. So yeah, just a lot to unpack. Yeah, lots to unpack. Let's focus in on a moment that, you know, maybe is the answer to what we're seeing. Uh, We kind of see that figure, apparently the same figure we saw inside of the glass box. It was certainly credited that way. That figure in the credits appears under the name Experiment. And we seem to see this experiment, this sort of strange, pale, ethereal figure out of its mouth, vomiting out although it looks very different from that strange things appear one of those strange things is a sort of orb rock thing I'm going to use the word thing so many times this week a strange orb rock thing with the face of Bob inside of it we, we you know this is the moment where th- that gets a lot of people talking about like is this the birth of Bob is this kind of like the invention of this evil unto the world and the reason why I, I think it's important to zero in on this maybe more so than anything else in this sort of sequence is this is the moment with the nuclear blast Last that we see recreated, uh, you know, later in the episode when someone else watches it. I, I love the idea that we watch all this happening and then we watch someone else watching it just to sort of get that kind of extra layer of remove. Wait, 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 wait. Like everything you're saying, I just want to make a couple observations real quick. Not only in, in this sort of like, you know, sorry to be gross about this, but ejaculation coming out of this like experiment. Not only do you see this big glob of Bob face that's part of it, but you see upon review, I noticed this, other objects in that stream too, including speckled eggs. And the speckled egg will come in later when we meet the cockroach amphibious frog thing. But so yeah, you you have the experiment spewing all of this stuff that includes 
like yeah the the seed of bob but also these other eggs which also may be kind of like fertilizing our world with evil um but right after that shot where we see bob very fitting is we cut right back into the nuclear fire and literally like fire you know so like the idea of that bob being associated with fire fire walk with me i thought was 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 very apt I propose that uh, in the history books, we refer to this episode as a big glob of Bob face. Um, (laughs) So let's segue into just, uh, we've gotten all this stuff. This is all pretty abstract, fair to say. We move to a space that is maybe a space we've seen before, infinite purple ocean. Um, On that purple ocean, we move to a kind of atoll, a sort of mountain jutting out of the water. On that rock, there is some sort of domicile. I keep calling it a space castle because secretly that's what I want, but that's what I want in in my own life. But looking at it again, just the the design of it is quite interesting. It almost looks like like an instrument from some angles. Inside of this domicile, we see a lady by the name of Senorita Dido, getting that from the end credits, and uh, she's in a room. It feels like a very Lynchian room. It's, it's all in black and white. There's a cool lampshade. There was a thing that I kind of said, like I marked down in my notes, it looked a bit like a bell, although I'm I'm willing to have someone immediately correct me. And that bell, suddenly an alarm seemed to be going off. And right then, you know, as if he was never there or as if he was kind of emerging from within that device, the giant, or at least the actor who played the giant, uh, the character who we last saw way back in part one, sort of appeared and then seemed to kind of almost turn off the alarm. What was your kind of interpretation of what we were seeing here, Jeff? This this felt like we were moving into a new a new moment in this kind of origin story surrealist phantasma that we'd been experiencing. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to make. When we cut to, I like how you called it when our in, in our conversation last night, the infinite ocean. And yeah, it was sort of tinted purple, violet, um, which then reminds us of of when Agent Cooper fell out of the Black Lodge and landed in that other place. He momentarily landed on a patio of what looked like the exterior of a structure not unlike this one, at least architecturally. I'm not saying it's the same place, but it was um, maybe a different place, but had the same architecture. But but again, he looked out on um, an ocean that was tinged purple. So you do kind of wonder if we are in the same locality, <laughs> if you will, of Twin Peaks cosmology. And yeah, like... Um, that structure on top of that atoll, the initial words that I kind of like felt like they were coming to mind were like, you know, a lighthouse. But, you know, the word I thought was, you know, like it's 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 not a dark structure, but it's just the White Lodge. You know, like we've been told like in previous seasons of Twin Peaks in season two that there is a Black Lodge and then there is a White Lodge. And you wonder if this represents sort of the higher regions of the the supernatural realm of Twin Peaks. And then, yeah, we we go in, we, you know, that great shot where we go up and we look at this massive structure and then we move in. And it's so massive that you can't see right away that there is a single rectangular window or opening in this structure. Uh, And we pass through it and we, we meet Senorito Dido. But like, but when the giant K 
came out or whoever he is, because in the credits, he's listed as question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, several question marks, um, question mark, man. So this might not necessarily be the giant. He comes in. Yeah, like you're right. Is it a diving bell? Is it a containment unit for a nuclear bomb? You know, like bomb that they that atomic bomb that they detonated back at White Sands. The lore has it that they built a sort of like cylindrical structure to contain it because they worried it would fall apart or something like that. So maybe we were evoking that, but it started like ringing like an alarm bell, you know, and that's what seemed to kind of like get the question mark, question mark, question mark, you know, uh, like, etc. cetera, uh, his attention. And then he turned it off. And then, yes, he, he leaves that space from Senorita Dido and he walks through another room that looks like the lobby of a movie theater or, or, or you know, a, a lobby of, 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 of something, which we, and then he enters another space, which is clearly a movie theater without seats, and he walks up on a stage and he raises his hand and a movie starts to play. What, what does he see, Darren? Well, uh, he sees what we just saw. This is essentially the Twin Peaks version of a previously on where, uh, you know, he sees White Sands, Nuclear Blast. Uh, you know, he sees the kind of experiment, um, the big glob of Bob face freeze frames on the movie screen. I, I sort of, I kind of loved how, you know, this kind of movie screen at the edge of the universe, I loved how it simultaneously conjured up a kind of very silent movie era of movie watching. But then like with that freeze frame, it also seemed to sort of, you know, imply some resonance with how most of us watch things now and easily possible, uh, you know, showtime anytime type of uh, viewing experiences <laughs> much like the giant jeff fair to say we all probably freeze framed on that last night just to figure out what the heck was going on so you, you know i, I like that little note there um very clear to me i would say jeff that like the giant which is what we'll call him because i don't like saying 10 question marks in, in a row um very clear to say he felt the need to react to that i love your idea that if this is the white lodge this is a sort of specific counter reaction to what he has seen and perhaps we could say if some aspect of this part of Twin Peaks was about the birth of evil or the birth of this evil we're also seeing the birth of evil's opposite whatever that might be or you know the birth of something beautiful at least because what happened next just the music on the soundtrack certainly seemed to imply we were witnessing something something better than what we'd witnessed before because uh, you you know, the giant sort of begins to ascend. He ascends into the air. You know, the his, his body sort of sort of seeming to float. Senorita Dido, who, you know, for all we know is his wife or his mother or his daughter or who knows what, roommate, she appears to sort of bear witness <laughs> to this. And, you know, you know, what I love, Jeff, you know, the use of black and white in general is interesting. Um because, you know, on one hand, because, you know, the one other time we've seen black and white was in part one with the giant. So you want to kind of say, OK, like, is black and white kind of a code for, you know, time locking us or geo locking us to a specific part of this narrative? But also because just in the most subtle way, light suddenly came into this world and the sort of heavenly yellow light that seemed to emerge out of the giant's mouth and the way it kind of bathed everything in that kind of in, in that warm yellow glow was sort of you know really lovely 
within that light is an orb. Uh, you know, Senorita Dido is kind of watching all of this. You know, you sort of mentioned something in a previous episode about the directions Lynch gives his actors. And I was wondering if, like, for this, it was just like a 10-minute shot of him saying, okay, look happy. Now look kind of scared. Now look happy. Now look scared. Like this incredible <laughs> expression on her face that was not entirely readable. You know, I would just read it as sort of religious ecstasy, if you know, for lack of a better word. An orb kind of descends to her, and within that yellow orb is the face of Laura Palmer. <laughs> and I like I, I have to say, just in an episode that was just so nuttily cosmic and like far flung, I almost thought there was something funny, first funny and then really lovely about suddenly it all coming back to Laura Palmer. I have no idea what was going on there precisely, Jeff. Did you have any, uh, upon rewatch, did you have any kind of clarity about the Laura Palmer-ness of this episode? Well, when I saw Laura Palmer's face, corny is a word that comes to mind. You know, um, Lynch is not afraid of corny. And we'll talk about that in a minute when we get into the next sequence here, where, you know, he just loves the extremes and he plays to the extremes. So yes, if like, Bob is the scraggly face of evil. Somehow in the the symbol system of this episode, of this season of Twin Peaks, Laura Palmer represents something of the opposite. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that what we're seeing is the giant responding to the problem of evil, i.e. Bob, with his own solution. Now, when you see the picture of Laura Palmer and this like the, the teenage face of Laura Palmer, yeah, we wonder if, like, are we in the past and he's setting in motion something like the conception or birth of Laura Palmer, who clearly wasn't born in, like, 19, the, the 40s or 50s, but was, was born much later. But does this represent, like, him setting into motion in the world events that will lead to Laura Palmer, which will then lead to other events, which will lead to the balancing of the force that will be the removal of Bob from the world. We can interpret all of this uh, moment like this. So yes, when Senorita Dido gets the glob, she raises up to the rafters of the theater. It ascends into some kind of like, you know, this arcing golden metal thing that looks like both a chute and a, a, a musical instrument and it's part of a mechanism of gears and, and that are that are turning and stuff. And the glob goes into the tube and it goes out the other end, like uh, shoots and ladders, like a marble going through that. And it goes toward the movie screen, which now is showing a sort of like what looks to me like a cartoon representation of the planet Earth. <laughs> the glob moves out of the tube merges with the screen, then passes into the space that we're seeing on the screen and moves toward Earth, toward the United States, or to the North American continent, toward the place that we know to be Washington State. Just very geo-specific there, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> Team White Lodge. Like, boy, they knew where that was going. Well, Jeff, I'm sure you'd agree with this. The most important place in the cosmos is the Pacific <laughs> Northwest, right? I mean, that's been, we, we just know that. People from the Pacific Northwest know that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a simple yes. fact of life. Right. Well, well, I'm from Seattle, Washington, so I could just tell you that that is the seat of the universe. So, um, yeah. But I just want to offer a different interpretation to that scene, too, which is my theory that we're looking at origin stories, big bang myths, creation stories, 
But are we also looking at those things in the context of reincarnation and and it is happening again? So another way to look at it, because we've been color tracking in this podcast and we've been noting that the uses of yellow, shades of yellow, gold are often representative of earthly suffering and the golden energy that came out of the floating giant forming kind of a, a mass of life, a, a, a primordial stew of life. I, I saw other people online speculating that it initially looked like the shape of a uterus. <laughs> but regardless, out of this sort of like mass of life stuff comes this glob of Laura Palmer. Um, but it's yellow and it's like golden. And is it like a, a golden life? Or does it also kind of represent kind of like the earthly material of of earthliness, which is associated with pain and suffering and, and Garmin Bosia, cream corn um, in the symbol system of the show. So what I wanted to suggest to you is when we last saw Laura Palmer in some kind of like living state in this show, she was having that moment with Agent Cooper in the red room, and then she stood up, and then it seemed to be that she either launched herself out of the red room, or she was pulled out of the red room um, by some other higher force. And if you agree with me, or if you, you know, within my theory construct, that we're at the White Lodge, and the White Lodge is sort of above the red room, and... Is it possible that what happened in the scene is that the giant pulled Laura Palmer or this the spiritual construct of Laura Palmer that is largely defined by her worldly pain and sorrow and suffering pulled her out of the the Black Lodge or the Red Room for the purpose of sending her soul or her spirit back to Earth in the present as an agent of justice, as an agent of vengeance. I mean, if you if you think about anyone in this show that deserves to really destroy and just beat the shit out of like Bob or the incarnation of evil, it's got to be Laura Palmer, right? So I just wonder if like, yeah, we're, we might be looking at the creation myth of Laura Palmer. Like we might now understand her whole life on earth as a, you know, it's like literally the force trying to correct itself. Like she's made of midi-chlorians, I guess, you know, like she's like Anakin Skywalker, you know, um, but, or are we looking at, at, at the giant, like, um, sending the spirit of Laura Palmer um, that had been captured by the Black Lodge back to Earth for the purpose of some endgame fight with Bob. Yeah, I like the idea that that's sort of like, because, you know, you you were kind of describing that odd instrument mechanism glowing gold thing that was up above the movie theater. Uh, I would describe it with, with a nod to Dr. Seuss as an eight-nozzled elephant-toted boom blitz. Um, but I like the idea... I like the idea that like like that might be like heaven or where souls go or like yeah. something. And I like the idea that, you know, we are simultaneously seeing the birth of all of this, but also the rebirth of all of this. And like what's happening in that moment could be both the giant saying, here is, you know, here is Laura Palmer and we shall, you know, create her up, uh, upon the earth. But he's also kind of pulling her out of retirement, right? He's like, right. you know, he's like Dennis Farina going to see William Peter 
Peterson at the beginning of Manhunter and saying like, listen, I know you got a great life here by the beach slash here in heaven, <laughs> but the absolute worst person ever is on the loose. And so we need you to come out of retirement. I, I, I kind of like that. I, I think that like that's maybe the way to understand this episode. It is both a prequel and it is also a direct kind of following continuation of what we saw earlier in the episode. Right. Jeff, let's go back to Earth, maybe, possibly, or at least uh, the part of Earth called New Mexico. The, the, the year is 1956. So we see a cockroach thing get born out of one of those sort of eggs that you'd mentioned. I, I, I keep on calling it a cockroach thing. I've watched it a lot. I, I really can't... I do Full credit to Lynch as a creator of things that are horrifying but also intangible this is right up there with the eraser head baby as far as being like just when you kind of think you have a bead on what it looks like you sort of catch another angle of it and just the weird like human way that this thing crawled across the desert was really disgusting um but you know we, we, we kind of see this happen out in the desert I, I think you know we can certainly draw a line from everything we saw earlier with the nuclear bomb with the sort of you know things spewing globs of bob out out of its face um you know elsewhere in town a little girl and a little boy are just kind of having a nice mid-50s moment back before the 50s were weird jeff you know they're just having a nice moment he's walking her home he's not going with mary anymore thank goodness nobody liked mary um (laughs) they find a lucky they find a lucky penny it's heads up that means it's good luck spoiler alert no it doesn't um (laughs) And then, uh, meanwhile, meanwhile in town, the woodsmen have appeared. And I have to just give a shout out to Robert Broski, who played the main woodsman, the guy walking around asking people, got a light? Um, I, I believe like, like that actor actually does work as an Abraham Lincoln impersonator, uh, which gave the weird like discovery of the penny a lot of strange resonance, maybe. But I, I just thought that, like, you know, to cut from the sort of cosmic surreality of what we saw earlier to just like this was almost like 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 a Stephen King short story. Right. Like this was just this great kind of like small 50s town just gets invaded by this Lovecrafty and horror. Um, How did you kind of feel about uh, the, the goings on in, in the 1956 part of this episode, Jeff? Yeah. Uh, um, so back to our, our our friend the egg there uh yeah you know so it's interesting what i immediately thought of was we're now like what 12 or some odd years after the atomic test um in in roughly the same location and life now is being born in this sort of like atomic blasted land so out of this sort of speckled egg um, some of this, uh, you can look at it as either some kind of like crazy, awesome new kind of life or some kind of like abominable mutant, um, something that is just totally unnatural. So this is David Lynch basically doing his Godzilla movie, right? Um, sort of like those <laughs> mid, mid-century like monster movies uh, that are about like, you know, freaking out over the implications of, 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 of radiation and atomic energy and the kinds of like monsters that are created out of it. So out of this egg, which falls to earth apparently in the spew from the experiment uh, who is seeding the world with evil comes this egg 
egg and out of it hatches this abominable evil creature or or a new kind of life. Who knows what this thing really represents, but it represents certainly an, a, a new evolutionary kind of form of life. And that immediately gets me thinking about the evolution of the arm. So you have this, this, this sort of all of these sort of illusions and symbol systems working together. That was fascinating. But yeah, you have this classic Lynchian thing of kind of creating this like very sweet mid-century pure love innocence the kind of thing that people used to think that he was making fun of and being ironic about that he was subverting and i think maybe in the early days that was fair to say because the way that he shot that it seemed so ironic but here there was an earnestness i really thought to that little sort of like teenage drama being played out by a character called boy and girl and it makes you just kind of realize that well I think both how Lynch has sort of grown as a filmmaker that you can maybe trust his tones a little bit more. Yeah, I mean like it's corny by our, you know, our standards and all that, but he he clearly believes in it. Well, like whatever this represents to him, I think he understands that the world is not this way and then it, and it's fallen and it's corrupt or whatever. And and but th- there's something in these symbols that he finds true and good and pure and universal, you know? I mean, it's a really complex myth that he's essentially creating here. So this sweet little thing that's playing out in in this town that has apparently grown up around this radioactive blast site. That that's what my impression is. They were walking out of what appeared to be the same convenience store gas station that we saw earlier in the show. So like out of this maybe prop town uh, that had been created for the purpose of blowing it up. A, a, a real town, real life has has bloomed, and there's something sweet about it, but there's also something corrupt about it. Um, but yeah, and then the woodsman arrives, and he has that encounter with the husband and wife on the road, and he's got this cigarette, and he's got a light, and his and his and his voice is crackly with electricity. He sounds radioactive. His skin is like either sun darkened or or just blackened. Um, he's got that woodsman's cap on. And what I find all really interesting about when people encounter this evil, this creature, this woodsman, who fell to earth, by the way, with a couple other uh, part of his cohorts, people seem to be like magnetically drawn to him. Um, mm-hmm. Like they, they can't look away. Um, they're also horrified by him. So yeah, he stops that husband and wife in the road in the car and he like is just looking at this guy and he clearly is horrified by him, but can't look away. Meanwhile, his wife is just screaming, no, but time and there's, <laughs> but time and inside their, their car has been warped and they're moving slowly. But I got the sense that she was the one that was able to essentially slam her foot on the gas pedal and move them away from the moment. So yeah. So anyway, boy and girl have a sweet moment. He asks if he could kiss her. She says, oh, I don't know. And he's like, please. And she goes, okay. And so they kiss. Um, And then she goes inside the house and he walks away and she goes into her room and she turns on the radio. And apparently within this sort of like this town um, in New Mexico, there is a small, there is a radio station. 
and it is playing the Platters song, My Prayer. We're in August of 1956. That song was released in uh, the previous month. Um, and the woodsman sees the, this radio station in the distance and, and, and moves his way toward it. And before we describe the horror that un- unfolds inside the radio station, uh, fun fact, Darren, the Platters have had a number of lineups over the year. But do you know that the one of their original members uh, um, ha- went by the name David Lynch? What? Yes. <laughs> One of the original what? members of the Platters was named David Lynch. Wait, wait, what? I'm not kidding. It's just like another David Lynch? It, it, it's on It's on Wikipedia. Look it up. David Lynch was a member of the Platters. No, not the David Lynch. Not our David. Not the David Lynch who made Twin Peaks. But David Lynch, um, one of the founding members and singers of the Platters. Yes. What? That's incredible. And also, just, just to say, you know, usually... When you're a spirit that wanders from body to body, you you don't just keep taking the same name when you do that. <laughs> David Lynch, ethereal spirit who's been with us since the dawn of time. Um, that's incredible. I don't know what to make of that. That's that's too much to handle for me, Jeff. You gotta you gotta keep talking. I need to like reorient myself here. <laughs> yes. So uh, the other thing I would say is that the B side of my prayer um, is a song called Heaven on Earth. And this is not heaven on earth. So this is something quite different apparently here in in, in New Mexico. But given that we we might, you know, speculate that um, the stuff with the giant takes place in the Twin Peaks version of heaven or as good as it gets as heaven. um, That's an interesting kind of pairing of songs. The woodsman enters the radio station. He walks in. The receptionist sees him. She's clearly horrified by him but she's also clearly drawn to him. She just walks right up to him. The woodsman grabs her head. And um, does he ask her for a light too? Yes, yes. Got got a light. Got a light. And he grabs her head and he just crushes it. And her head splits open. Blood spews everywhere. This episode, already dark, just got really dark. Uh, The woodsman enters into the disc jockey's booth. He too grabs the disc jockey's head he pushes the needle off the record scratch. Everyone around town who's listening to this station is all of a sudden hearing that record scratch and going, what's going on at the radio station? Uh-huh. Uh, the woodsman grabs the disc jockey's microphone and he ends up kind of saying this phrase, this is the water and this is the well, drink full and descend. The horse is the white of the eyes and the, and the dark within. Uh, and then repeat. He says this several times with a cigarette in his mouth, sounding something like John Houston. And uh, and he says this over and over again while gripping this man's skull, taking his sweet time, digging his fingers into things that bleed. Meanwhile, all around town, everyone who is listening to this phrase over the airwaves um, is either falling asleep or dropping dead. Um, I can't really tell. We do cut back to the girl in her room who is able to listen to this phrase at least several times. And she doesn't necessarily just drop to her knees dead, but she just kind of like crawls out on her bed and falls asleep. And as she falls asleep, the amphibious winged cockroach evolution of creation monster thing hops, hops, hops toward her home and then flitters up to her windowsill, crawls in, gets on her bed. And as he approaches it, I'm calling it a he, let's call it an it. 
as it approaches the girl's face, she very helpfully just decides to open her mouth, or maybe he, it, psychically manipulates her to open uh, uh, her mouth. And he just, it, crawls right in. And I want to say that I've seen horror movies or read horror comics in the past that involve kind of like satanic frogs, like crawling inside people's mouths and taking control of them. I think that's a pretty, like an Alan Moore swamp thing device. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, regardless, that was really gross. That was just really gross watching that happen. Yeah, that was so gross. But, but I would just say too, Jeff, like, uh, you know, the lead up to that, it almost kind of brings a tear to my eye. How kind of beautiful this sequence was, even though it's so disgusting, because the specific shots that Lynch chooses to kind of show you around this town are so mythically potent for like 1950s Americana. I mean, we're like 60 years out from people reconstructing and deconstructing the fifties as this kind of cultural idea. And, you know, you just have like the guy in the garage doing work and you have the waitress at a diner that I believe is literally called Pop's Diner. Just this That's this right. single shot that we get in there that seems to come right out of like, you know, every 50s movie and right out of, you know, American Graffiti and all of this. And, you know, this girl on a bed listening to the radio. That's like something out of Bye Bye Birdie. And I just love how like, you know, you move from like the sort of, pop myth of that to them all kind of falling asleep i think it was sleep i don't think it was it was meant to be death but but who knows you know to them sort of falling asleep and this strangeness of what they're listening to on the radio and then the the very real and vivid but also quite surreal violation of what happens when that creature crawls into the, the girl's mouth you know it made me think of how in firewalk with me we see that bob kind of enters laura palmer's room through the open window and there's this yeah. sense of like the the penetration of the house and you know the the way in which what we're seeing is you know this sort of darkness claiming this young innocent and, you know all of this kind of coming together I hadn't even thought of but I love your reference to Godzilla this idea of you know we aren't just kind of seeing one American myth of the 50s we're seeing a lot of them all kind of coming together this this monster evolution thing made by the atomic age and just all of this happening you know is so it's seismic but, but then also you know we we cut back to the woodsman in the radio hq and then lest we get kind of too you know up in the clouds with our appreciation of this he very vividly cracks that guy's skull open huh. and the shot of his fingers kind of almost like you know having having ground having ground their way into the skull his fingers sort of plopping out as he pulls his hand up it's just all coming together in such a really vivid way um and you know a lot of people were kind of speculating you know are we meant to know who this girl is you know like I, my, my mind of course raced to sarah palmer you know is, is is this meant to be a younger version of someone we've seen before my gut instinct is no because i do think that we're meant to more feel like that this is a sort of, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, a, a kind of penetration of all American innocence, perhaps. Um, but just, I mean, you know, whether this does connect directly or indirectly, I just felt like the 
you know, earthquake level re- you know, emotional reaction that I had to all this was something that I'm, I, I'm, you know, not gonna, I am not gonna easily get over. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. <laughs> right. And then the, after the woodsman kills the disc jockey, he leaves the radio station. We get a brief flash of white light as often attends um, like Black Lodge uh, deities or entities. And then he he walks off into the horizon like, you know, some kind of cowboy walking off into the sunset, only he's walking off into the, the, the night. And then he disappears and vanishes. You wonder if these specters roam the earth or if they descend uh, like, yeah, some like cosmic horror, you know, uh, Cthulhu monsters or whatever, and like, you know, feed well, and, 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 and do their business and then like go back to wherever they, they reside in, in the universe. But as he disappears, you hear the whinnying of a horse. Um, which kind of uh, um, in the distance, um, which kind of then evokes like that saying that he was saying over and over again, suggesting the pale horse of death or something apocalyptic like that. And that's where the episode ended. I just have a couple quick things to throw out. You were mentioning, Jeff, the sort of whinnying of the horse in the distance. We have seen a white horse a few times in Twin Peaks lore, way back in the beginning of this season, when the red room and the curtains all kind of flooded up as if like taken by an awful wind. There was that white horse. Sarah Palmer, I believe, has seen a white horse at some point in her various hallucinatory uh, journeys through this show. Also want to just quickly point out that uh, the movie theater at the edge of the universe, where the giant sort of witnessed the birth of the nuclear age and the birth of Bob. I believe that is the same movie theater that played Club Silencio in Mulholland Drive, which okay. is for, for, for Lynch fans. Is, I, I, I think, I haven't fully figured that out, but I believe that is the Tower Theater in Los Angeles. Just a fun little little connecting point. And also, you were kind of mentioning the sort of the sort of light at the end as the woodsman left, which made me think a little bit of the strange flashing light that kind of bridges the, the realities of Lost Highway. But also, we should mention, we've talked so much about the woodsman. In Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, when yes. we see the room, when we see the room above the convenience store, and we see the Black Lodge entities that we kind of recognized from the first run of the show, when we see the arm and Bob. Bob and the grandmother and her and her grandson. There are also two woodsmen in that room who seem to be. This I think lends credence to the idea that these creatures may be more kind of helper figures to the Black Lodge. That you know there are there is only one Bob and only one arm, but there might be many woodsmen. Um, you know. I really loved so much of this episode. I'm kind of at a loss to dig deeper into explanations. Jeff, you had sort of mentioned something that I found interesting when we were talking last night, that another interpretation of all of this is, you know, if you're looking for the most straightforward interpretation, atomic bomb going off seems to open up some kind of rift in dimensions or perhaps announce the Earth's presence to these sort of upper level entities in a way that makes them take notice of us. You know, I, I would say that's maybe that's maybe even the most direct line of analysis. I'm not sure it's the most exciting or interesting, but certainly that's like what could be one broad definition of all of this. Atomic age equals beginning of these creatures sort of paying attention to Earth. But what, what, do you have any kind of closing thoughts on this, Jeff? You know, we're going to be taking two weeks off af- after this. A lot to munch on. A lot that I'm sure the internet's going to be munching on. 
on. But, you know, as far as kind of like having seen this episode twice now, uh, any other kind of like things that have, that have jumped out to you? Yeah, just real quick. I mean, you mentioned that whole idea of like, you know, atomic bomb opening a, a, up a rift. And yeah, like did the detonation of that atomic bomb get the attention of these higher dimensional uh, like beings? That's a classic like, you know, sci-fi trope. And there was something almost alien about the woodsman and his fellow uh, woodsmen, especially with that electric garble in his voice, got a light. And then uh, and the way that, that, that he walked, you almost wondered if there was like an attempt to sort of, yeah, like we're latching on to like... Like 50s monster movies in this. We're latching on to 50s sci-fi um, and, and, and aliens um, and all of that. So um, there's any number of comic book stories that I can point to, specifically Grant Morrison and the Invisibles that kind of suggested this whole mythology of like when we detonated a, a bomb, we cracked open like a fabric of reality and let in uh, all these like, you know, like, you know, opened up a portal to a very dark dimension. But but with all these illusions, everything that we said, like I kind of fall back on, let it be weird. Uh, like I, I'm mystified. I love ruminating on it. I love talking it through. But in terms of what it all means and how much of it is actually relevant and resonant to the story at hand, I'm letting go and letting Lynch Frost uh, take over, you know, like, uh, like in sense of like, they'll let me know what it all means. Um, but in the meantime, I'm just kind of like reflecting on and relishing some just absolutely strange, evocative, beautiful, unsettling filmmaking and just weirdness. Yeah. Total weirdness, a lot of things, a lot of orb things, a lot of wild new visions, which is what it's all about. Uh, we'd love to hear from everybody out there. I'm sure you've got all kinds of good things to say. Hopefully we've assisted you in either understanding this part of Twin Peaks or perhaps deepening your appreciation of it. Or maybe you heard us say something and you said that's definitely not right. And, and if that's the case, please do tweet at us. He's at EW Doc Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich, not a doctor. You can also email us your thoughts. Boy, I'm sure we have thoughts at twinpeaks at ew.com. Uh, we're not going to be around next week as the show is taking a break, uh, but we'll, we'll be coming back to look at Twin Peaks Part 9 in two weeks' time. In the meantime, hey, have you liked this show? Hope so. We love doing it. You can uh, give us a rate and review on iTunes right now. Let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, hey, have a happy 4th of July. <laughs> <laughs> just the most appropriate thing we can end on right like go america um in, in the wake of this episode that was very morally ambiguous and indifferent and and, and critical of, of the american myth go celebrate your fireworks blow some stuff up <laughs> i don't know what i'm saying <laughs> we'll see you in two weeks <laughs>